Osiris. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome back to We Move Through Stormy Weather, a fish podcast by Storm Sound, where we compare and contrast songs and the evolution of their jamming styles throughout the band's career. My name is Ryan Storm, and today I am joined by Zach Brock. Critically acclaimed as the preeminent improvising violinist of his generation, Zach is an American jazz violinist and multi-Grammy award-winning member of Snarky Puppy. He has toured with Stanley Clark and Phil Markowitz, released seven solo albums, and was named Rising Star Violinist of 2013 by Downbeat Magazine. A passionate educator, Zach has coached hundreds of musicians from workshops to conservatories worldwide. Zach remains a perennial coffee fanatic and skateboard enthusiast and currently lives with his wife and daughters in the NYC area. Zach, say hi. Hi, how's it going, Ryan? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for being on today. I'm a huge, huge fan, and I'm really excited uh, to talk some fish with you. Sounds good. So, you know, before we uh, get into the episode, I just want to say hi, everybody listening. It's been a little while since we had one of these episodes. Um, Very excited to be getting back into the swing of things uh, with fish content. Just to let you know, these will be out um, not as frequently as they used to be, but whenever there is an episode, uh, there will be one out. So look forward to many more episodes of We Move Through Stormy Weather coming out. Also, if you didn't know already, uh, Storm Sound, uh, which is my brand new business, um, exists. Uh, check it out at thisisstormsound.com. We've got an amazing merch store, lots of uh, fish and goose-related designs and other fun stuff. Uh, also, you can find all of my concert reviews and whatnot there. So let's dive in. Without further ado, Zach, how did you get into fish? I got into fish through an older brother of one of my best friends growing up. I had just gotten into playing guitar. Mm. I was really into Jimi Hendrix. I was really into I was really into Jimi Hendrix, especially at the time. My grandfather owned a music store. My grandparents had a music store in Lexington, Kentucky, where I grew up. And so, uh, and my dad played 
besides trumpet, my dad was a guitar is a guitar player. And so uh, I would, there were guitars around the house, but I would go over to my grandfather's music store and get the electrics off the wall and get to mess around with effects and stuff. Anyway, that's sort of, I was getting into that. Mm -hmm. My friend's older brother was uh, obviously a better guitar player than I was. (laughs) And I thought he was really cool. And he would, yeah, gosh, I mean, he introduced us to so many things besides fish you know, uh, dead Kennedys, uh, you know, I mean like a, a, a vast variety of things, uh, especially Jimi Hendrix, a lot of psychedelic rock and stuff like that. So I got an LP and this is back when LPs were not hip again, like they are now, but most mm-hmm. people probably were wanting CDs. I guess LPs were never not hip, but it was sort of the end of the tape era. Right. Um, this would have been the early nineties. I got an LP of Lawn Boy. Mm. And I had a record player, crappy little Fisher all-in-one stereo system that I had hooked up in my room where I had my, my tape decks and my record player and this my speakers pointed at my head so I could lay in bed. And that's this is how I first started listening to, to Fish. And I grew up playing classical music, grew up playing classical violin, singing in choirs, and it was very much kind of coming out of that and, and folk music with my, with my family. And I got into improvisation playing in bands with my family and with my dad. And so there were things going on in that album. I guess we were sort of right at the beginning of the grunge era that sort of had, I guess that, yeah, that was in full swing at this time. This would have probably been about 1990. 1990, 1991. When did, you know, when Lawn Boy came out, I don't know. Lawn Boy came out in 90. Okay. So this is probably 90 or 91. And uh, I was just really inspired by some of the more compositional elements. I liked the fact that they were being weird, Mm -hmm. that they were obviously coming from some type of a counterculture gestalt. Yeah. What, what was, what was it like hearing that kind of the classical compositional influence that is in fish songs like that? Like, what was it like from you coming from classical music, hearing songs like split open and melt or Reba or divided sky for the first time? Well, when I, we hear stuff like that, it's stuff that it's, it's very normal for me. It's very familiar. And so Mm -hmm. just sort of lights up more buttons in my brain probably than a lot of other stuff. I was also actually by that time I had gotten into Frank Zappa. So I was really oh, into yes. Zappa too. And in particular, not so much uh, the mothers of invention, but especially one size fits all. That was my favorite, still kind of my favorite Zappa record. And that, that iteration of that band from the mid seventies, um, compositional rock and stuff like that, shredding guitar. That's what I loved. So, uh, you know, another thing that I really liked, really liked the Trey's guitar tone. Yeah. It was really, it was really interesting to me. Uh, it was very violin-like in a certain way. It was, it was, uh, especially when he gets into the never-ending note sustain stuff, mm-hmm. that first Languedoc guitar that he had. And uh, I, th- I think that I, I probably responded to that. There was a lot of other guitar players that I hadn't heard. I I hadn't really listened to a lot of Carlos Santana at the time. So I wasn't drawing any correlations in the tone. For me, it was just, who is this weird 
dude from Vermont and these guys with these, you know, almost sort of like reading John Lennon's poetry of sort of the nonsense, mm-hmm. psychedelic, whatever you would, whatever you would call it, uh, things with, with the lyrics. So for me, as a kid growing up in Lexington, Kentucky, was just, it was a really cool record to have gotten from a cool older brother yeah. of a friend. And it really, really inspired me to, to find out more about them. And so that's where I started. And, and then, I did, I, yeah. And then when was your first show? So I went to college in, in Chicago. Well, technically Evanston, which is where I met Drew Hitz. Yeah. Uh, we both went to Northwestern. And pretty sure that got the record with Fee. Yep. Junta. Yeah. Junta. I don't know if I got that in Lexington before I left or if I got that up in Evanston, but mm-hmm. That then that really drove me wild. I really, really love that a lot. And um, I believe that my first fish show was at this small ish club in Chicago called The Vic. And I saw all kinds of bands at The Vic. I saw Fish, I saw Rollins Band. I even would it saw- have been uh, December 5th, 1992? Probably. There you go. Is, is that one at The Vic? That's yeah, they played two nights there in December 92. That was it. That was it. There you go. I was a freshman in college. Yeah. So uh, what what was that like, you know, going from listening to the studio stuff to listening live? Because at that point, had did you have any live tapes from the late 80s or early 90s? Or was this your, no. your first experience seeing or hearing live fish? What I remember, unless you were from Vermont or somebody that had been hearing them for a while. Yeah. The taping scene was... Not much at the time. Yeah, it was very new. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. just you know may, maybe a a dude or a couple of dudes in the back of the room with some mics and I mean it, it, yeah I didn't know that until we started trading tapes. Right. Um, Which was so when when did you start trading tapes? Was it right it, after this or it took a while? Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it, it was so. I, of course, I started trading tapes as soon as I connected with other people my age listening right. to music. So to me, that is the most important thing for me about, about my, my love of, of fish. Um, so because, because I am the age that I am Mm -hmm. growing, you know, born in the seventies, growing up in the eighties, I always had this very wistful idea about what it must've been like for my parents' generation growing up in the sixties, having a counterculture that was something separate from status quo of what was going on in the United States and being able to connect with young people my age, mm-hmm. being able to experiment with everything, being able to find out who you are, being able to still have fun, being able to extend the best parts of your childhood into the beginning of your adulthood. I think that this was what I was looking for. Yeah. And so I didn't know, of course, also, I mean, this was also before, really before the internet you know, yeah. wide use of the internet. I mean, I guess it existed, but uh, nobody was using it because there was nothing on it. So right. you couldn't see videos of shows. You couldn't see people. You couldn't see parking lots. You just had to go and experience that. So it was a massive shock in, in, in a great way for me to go to that first show and to see, oh my God, not only are there are these people from Chicago going to see this show, but there's tons of people that came from out of town to also see the show. Yeah, traveled from far away to see, you know, this band. 
Yeah, and we're all lined up in December in Chicago, freezing our asses off. Oh man, <laughs> around the block. Um, yeah, you know uh, that just an experience like that is something that brings people together. So mm-hmm. I remember the energy of the show being explosive. Also, I don't know if you can pull up the the capacity of the Vic, but it's very small. Um, for for those of you that are that are fish fans out there that are used to just seeing fish in at Madison Square Gardens or something like that. Um, so yeah, this yeah, it's only a thousand uh, capacity. Thousand. Yeah, thousand capacity, packed. Anyway, I, I'm I'm waxing. What's good about this? That, yeah. that's 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 what we do here. It's it's a lot of long winded rambling about fish. That's <laughs> the whole purpose of the podcast. Um, I know you. So you wanted to talk about bouncing around the room today. And while that's not a song that jams uh, per se or is very different um, from version to version, I'm interested to know why. Uh, you want to talk about that song. What specifically resonates with you when you hear that? <laughs> you know, I, I'm sorry to constantly switch all this up on you um, because I know that I, I know when we had talked about it earlier, I was talking about Reba. I, most of the songs that just hit me right off the bat, obviously were on, on long, on long voice. So mm-hmm. um, I loved it when they would play split open and melt or things like that where where they would jam out. I I was thinking about bouncing around the room because I thought that the 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 layering, simple but effective layering and canonic things going on between the piano and the guitar and mm-hmm. the, the melodies and everything like that. I just thought had a really lasting emotional impact. Yeah. Um uh now, I, I'm curious to know, uh, you mentioned earlier violin and guitar. Were you a violin player first or a guitarist yeah. first? Yeah, I started playing violin when I was four. And uh, I started playing guitar, messing around with the guitar, I should say. I don't know, maybe I was 12, mm-hmm. something like that. Right. Just kind of messing around, learning my first three chords, <laughs> learning how to bend a string. I haven't made it that far. <laughs> I play keys. Cool. <laughs> um, and I, I know kind of your thing is uh, like, you know, violin with like guitar effects, which is a really, really, you know, cool sound. And so do do you, when, when did you start experimenting with that? Was it like you were messing around with a guitar and you were like, oh, what if I put my violin through this? Or was it like a perf- purposeful, like you were like, I'm going to go and I'm going to, you know, make a pedal board for my violin and start, you know, playing around with that? Definitely not going and making a pedal board because I didn't even know what that was. And that was not even something that was so common back then. My mm-hmm. grandfather stocked a few of the, of the boss effects. So there would be, they would have a chorus pedal in there. They had the metal zone <laughs> and I would mess around with them and, and have fun with them. And I don't have a, I don't think that I had an electric guitar. Well, eventually I borrowed one from the store got the the, fa- the family discount um but yeah it was just single effects messing around and just trying to play stuff and hendrix stuff and just learning how to play blues guitar basically um but uh, a couple of things happened number one a guy that was playing in band with my dad at the time a mandolin player gave me his first mandolin that he made it was mm-hmm. kind of it's kind of a beater but he gave it to me 
you know, mandolin is the same as the violin, except just with frets. It's the same, same pitches, same, same strings. Yeah. So that was fun to mess around with because I was learning how to pick right hand guitar stuff and the left hand stuff and guitar, even though the strings are tuned differently is, is, uh, at least single note wise, very straightforward. Uh, so I got this mandolin and this little Barkus Berry pickup that was something that you would stick on the back of the wood of the instrument. It was just a, basically a contact mic type thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, my grandfather, or actually it was usually my uncle. My uncle was the one that would, was, he was an electric bass player. And so he would, he would get these things for other people coming to the store that were studying guitar and stuff like that. So there was this thing called, I'm going to get this wrong. You might have to, have to fact check me on this, but That's it was fine. <laughs> an Ibanez hot watt. Check this out. This is unbelievable. It was designed, it was put in a plastic casing to make it look like a Walkman because Walkmans were still a thing. So it was a plastic box that had a belt clip on it that you would actually you would clip on your belt. It had a quarter inch in and out. And then across the top, it had, I guess, a little gain knob. And it had just these buttons that you would turn on the chorus or turn on the reverb. Totally nuts. So Sorry. It's the Orion Hot Watt. Orion Hot Watt. Orion with an A. Oh, that's crazy. Okay. Yeah, it's got echo, chorus, metal, overdrive. Yes. So that was really, that's my, that's my entree because what I started doing, because I didn't have any, I didn't have a violin pickup and I didn't know that right. I could stick this thing in my violin. So um, I had this mandolin that I would mess around with and I would, and the cool thing about it was it was battery powered. So <laughs> you could clip it on your belt and just walk around with, you know, those little wire headphones with the, with the fuzzy things, <laughs> probably uh, people out there haven't even seen things like this unless you've watched stranger things. And then it would be the headphones right. that kids are wearing in stranger things is what it looks like. Um, but you've got these earphones on and you're going into this world. So I started getting into that. Um, I had heard Jean-Luc Ponty at that point, my dad had been getting me Ponty records. So I must've been connecting something about that. Although I wasn't listening a lot to that at the time. Um, but eventually, you know, that's what ended up happening. I started sort of collecting these weird sounding effects, uh, borrowing them from the store and mostly playing guitar with them. And uh, finally got, uh, you know, a crappy violin pickup that I could start doing the same stuff on the violin. Mm-hmm. And I guess it, you know, I guess it all happened pretty fast when it happened because there wasn't really a lot of time before I went to college where I was developing the stuff. I, I think that by, when I went to Chicago, I was very much at the beginning of my journey with all that. But mm-hmm. um, as f- so I, w- I liked to make the, the violin sound like a guitar. I was not aware yet of all the violinists that had come before me that had done this again, because there was no internet. So right. So you were like, well, I've discovered everything. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It was very, very easy back then to think that you were the only person in the world that had ever done this. (laughs) Um, And there's something good about that because there's something that, I mean, there's definitely a lot of bad about that because you might not have that same sort of competitive drive in a certain way, but you also get a deeper relationship with what you're finding because you're moving more slowly through it. That's mm-hmm. my, that's my take on it. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so 
I think by the time I I was at school and was going to fish shows, well, at that time, and when I met Drew Hitz, I actually had a band because I I started well with some friends. We sort of co-led a band a little bit in high school. I I don't know if we ever played more than about two gigs, but where I just played guitar. And I, I honestly right. wasn't even really sure if I just wanted to play guitar, um, even though I was actually going to school to get a violin degree. But I was secretly, <laughs> I was, I was, I was playing a lot of guitar at the time. And yeah. is there is there a lot that is applicable from learning how to play guitar to learning how to play violin, or is absolutely it very different? Yes. No, I mean every violin player should play the guitar. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that every guitar player should play the violin. I don't know if that's, <laughs> that that's really going to help you, but right. for for a violin, a violin player, well, the most legendary violin player of all time, Niccolo Paganini, was a very very good guitar player and mandolin player. Um, in fact, famous composers wrote him mandolin solos, and uh, you know he he composed a lot of stuff for guitar as well. It's something about having an instrument that has frets that has a certain kind of visual map and where you don't have to sweat the intonation. That's a big thing with the violin. The intonation is, is difficult enough that it takes a long time to start moving around sure-footedly, whereas on the guitar, right. you can you do it right away. So I think that it's great as a, as a violin player to play any sort of a fretted stringed instrument so that you can start experiencing the freedom of, of moving around your instrument. Mm-hmm. Got it. So, That's so, uh, yeah, yeah. So I was watching Trey shred and play, and I had listened to all the guitar players that I had listened to at the time, um, and I was just really, I was really drawn to the to the way that he he built solos. He he was playing different tension building. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, was, that's something that's I I've found at least in in my experience playing music, it's not easy to do really really well and that was something that like you know early early 90s fish that was just so exceptional at these just really really long tension builds and then just that explosive like peak when they get there so yeah yeah that must have been mind-blowing to see in person it was mind-blowing uh to experience it to see it to hear it at full volume and when i experienced that i thought this is what i want to do um there's some people that do that in jazz in different ways. And it, it mm-hmm. happens in classical. It, it happens in everything. It happens in all, it happens in all of the best music. It's not something that's so at the time that I was seeing a lot of uh, happening in rock bands. You're, you're sort of used to just sort of the hot flash guitar solo, more so, uh, sort of uh, similar to, to watching, I don't know, TikTok or Instagram guitar videos where everybody's trying to pack everything that they can into the first five seconds of what you see mm-hmm. was sort of the format of a lot of guitar solos, except for obviously Jimi Hendrix, Band of Gypsies, Machine Gun, probably one of my favorites of all time. Mm-hmm. A lot of the long form Frank Zappa solos too, like Inca Rhodes. Yeah. But the way that Trey was using dissonance and also that super sustain on the guitar, build up that expectation and to keep you in that place of tension. I loved it. Mm -hmm. I loved it. So I was hooked. It's very cool. Now I'm curious, you know, that tension building and that um, influence from fish, at least when you're, when, you know, 
on stage with Snarky Puppy and Michael looks over at you for like a What About Me solo or a Lingus solo or something like that. Is there a different way you approach a really open-ended solo like that versus, say, the ending of Chonks, which is more just like a straightforward rock solo? Yes, very I, I bring that specific example because I was listening to a version of Chonks this morning uh, where, you know, you took the outro solo and it was, I was, it was interesting to hear, um, you know, how you approached, it was the more extended version with like the drum break and everything versus just like the, the album length version. Um, so I, I'm just curious to hear how you approach those really long form open-ended ones like Lingus and What About Me. Yeah, it's a totally different way of improvising. One of my favorite things about playing in Snarky Puppy is the total improvisational quality of what's going on on stage and, and between us. Uh, so there's some things maybe that some people, some people know, some people don't know about, about Snarky. Um, mm-hmm. is that number one, there is no music. There's no mu- music for, there's no sheet music for, for any of this. There's no charts. So, Everyone learns everything from a sequence or however the person who writes the song is, is going to present that to the band, which is usually a sequence, usually something in logic or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that way, also, it's, it's not sequenced out so that the instrument's sounds are really specific. Uh, it's usually just a very generic sound of it could be anything. So everybody has to, everybody is, is, Everybody has to learn everything yeah. before. So in that way, this is great because then things can be traded around, um, uh, including solo sections and, and everything else, written parts, harmony parts. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. Uh, so the other thing is, as far as solos go, there are no assigned solos. Nobody always takes the same solo. I mean, usually Justin takes the solo at the end of, uh, God, blanking on. <laughs> usually the the drum solos are usually the drum solos the drum solos uh, yeah 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 they'll, they'll, they'll i mean whoever's playing drums is going to play the drum solo yeah but um mike could even throw that to the percussionist right um and anyway everybody has to be on call for for anything that could happen at any moment so mm-hmm. how, how many how many seconds of warning do you usually get before you get zero seconds <laughs> you get z- it's it's and that's the is it I, like as the solo section approaches, like everybody kind of tenses up and looks at Mike to see who he's going to yep. give the nod to? Totally. That's, that's a, 100% it. And if, if you're playing, if we're playing the same song the next night, which sometimes we do, but the repertoire is so vast now that, uh, you know, there's a lot of not repeating stuff. Um, but for sure, if you play the solo on Lingus the night before, you're definitely not. I mean, you might not play another solo for the rest of the tour on right. Lingus. So every time one of these things rolls around, uh, one, of, one of the longer form solos, it's kind of a special moment. And Mike is just really into letting everybody go in whatever direction you want to go. Yeah. Um, they're, the more surprising, the more you can surprise the band – the more you can surprise your bandmates, the more fun everybody has. Yeah. One of, one of my favorite things is listening to something like What About Me, where whoever's soloing will like hit on a cool theme or a cool riff or whatever. And then when the band comes back on stage, instead of just going right back into the song, they kind of like 
play around or jam on whatever theme the soloist has latched onto for a minute or two, which is really cool. There's a, um, a what about me from September, 2019 in Charlotte where Justin has the solo. Um, and he, and you guys just get into a really cool, uh, groove on that one, which oh, is yeah. one of my favorite versions of the song. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes those grooves that Mike and, and everybody will lock into or that the rhythm section might be a reference yeah, something like a Roy Hargrove tune, or sometimes that happens, and uh, it can be kind of obscure. It can be more overt, but there's always a lot of smiling and eye contact in that. And then, yeah, sometimes it just it just stays there. Mike is the one that that you know is is the decider of of how how long that's going to happen. But yeah, right. that's always fun. Yeah. So so sorry. Back to you know my original question before we tangent in a little bit when, when he you know looks to you say let's talk oh. about what about me first when he looks to you for what about me what are some kind of things that immediately flip through your mind that you immediately consider uh for what you're about to do well what about me really any of the really long form moments is really about pacing mm-hmm. so generally the first thing that i'm going to think about myself is listen, listen to what's going on. Let this, let the air clear, let space happen. Yeah. Use the space, play space. Right. I guess it's about where whoever's on drums also goes when the solo section begins. Yeah. But the, the relationship to the drums is, is a little bit different. Well, I mean, usually in what about me, the drum beat stays really driving. Although again, it really, you, you never really know what it could change. Gonna, it could yeah. change, but that happens. That happens a lot. So there's kind of a, even more tension coming from a, a, the horn player, guitar player, violin player, whatever, and sort of watching a train fly by and deciding how you're going to, how you're going to jump on to that train. Are you going to jump on in slow motion? Are you going to, you know, how, how are you going to do that? That's right. so, you know, that's one thing. Another thing that all of the, well, I mean, especially the me, the guitar players, and obviously the keyboard players, although it could be dictated by which keyboard they're playing. I'll, I'll just say for me and the guitar players, and also sometimes the uh, Maz who plays effects on his trumpet or Chris who's playing his saxophone with effects. Mm-hmm. Um, you're thinking about soundscape. What effects are you using? What effects have you used? Um, part of the thing for me, I, I don't, I don't like to same sound too much because it's a really big band. So you're generally getting one or two solos per show. Yeah. And it's something where when I'm playing my own band, I'm taking a solo on every song. I might Mm -hmm. settle into a certain, just a, just a certain sound. Yeah. Whereas in in snarky, it's, it's more of a, you make it count. When you get the spot. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, but then also when it comes to the long solos, mm-hmm. you have the option, you have the, you've got the option of either creating a soundscape, going in and playing that soundscape and imp- improvising with it in your instrument, or you can, you can add things in. Right. So, you know, it's always fun to, at a climactic moment to engage the whammy pedal or go with the ring modulator or, make the delay go crazy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, all of that stuff. Again, the idea being a lesson early on taken, taken from Trey and great musicians that are, that are great at this. And 
ways of creating sonic tension, ways of, of, so effects are great for creating different kinds of dissonance. You can always create tonal dissonance with your note choices and, and rhythmic dissonance with how you're playing against the rhythm. The thing that I love about effects is that you can create textural dissonance right on top of it. Yeah. 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 That, that first solo section of what about me always feels like it's just one like long tension build until the band drops back in to the song. And then it's like a release and then you're off like shredding for the rest of it. Now for Lingus, which is honestly a very different kind of open solo than what about me? Um, you know, also the chord progression that it's over is very much like a blank slate. Um, when, when you get nodded for that, how do you approach it differently than what about me? When I think about what about me, I think just totally open, more experimental. Um, and also it's a, it's not really a, it's a, it's kind of a double solo. What about me? Because the, mm-hmm. it's, it's really everybody drops out, but you and the drum. So it's really a duet solo. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the main difference and just getting getting a little bit weirder maybe with that. Right. When I play Lingus, I, I'm just thinking fusing out, man. I mean, really, <laughs> it's E minor modal vamp, which is yeah. just so much fun. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you know, uh, with that start to, uh, with, with, with the, with Lingus, I think that it, you start to get a little bit more rhythm section interaction as the solo goes on. Um, I mean, I guess you do in, in what about me too, to a certain extent, but uh, yeah, you know, that's, that's a good question. I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't just flip that. Yeah. Maybe I'll do that on this tour. Maybe I'll, maybe (laughs) I'll just, maybe I'll be, maybe if I get to play a solo on what about me, maybe I'll, I'll fuse it out more and think John McLaughlin and Billy Cobham, Uh, and go full on ring modulator craziness, and maybe uh, Lingus gets super weird. I don't know. Uh, it's a, that's part of joy of the of, of the improvisation, right? Right. Is there is there times where you'll be improvising with them, and you you know call to specific fishy themes, or like I I don't know how many other guys in the band are into fish at all. I know a couple of them have played with uh, Jazz's fish. Um, or yeah. acts like that, but I, I, I'm curious how much influence a band like Fish has on a band like Snarky Puppy, because there are a lot of parallels, at least for me as a listener, in terms of just the, you know, we're going to get on stage and anything can happen. Um, that's part of why I love, you know, discovering different Snarky Puppy shows because there's so many different versions of each song and so many different, you know, different intros to certain songs and like. You know, I discover a version of What About Me where Justin plays like a two minute long Rhodes intro. And I'm like, whoa, you know, never heard that before. So cool. Or yeah, like a Lingus with a really cool like vocoder solo from Sean that I hadn't heard anything like before. It's, so yeah, the end, the endless possibilities. Like, is there a lot of influence there? I think that the way that influences come out with this band, everything, everything is is cooking, you know? Mm-hmm. So every experience that you've had, ex- hearing live music, everything that you've ever listened to that's moved you is going into that. So is is that influence there? Absolutely. Uh, for me and, and for anybody else that has, has 
gotten into that. Um, there's also connections that get made, for instance. So if you, if you experience that kind of tension building thing going on in a, in a jam from an, an, a mid nineties show mm-hmm. tray, and you continue to expand things that you're listening to, you're going to hear Miles Davis doing that in the seventies. Right. And, and so then all of a sudden th- things start to, to mingle and then you start to connect that with oh the way that Coltrane comes in on his Afro Blue solo from the Afro Blue Impressions record with a non-dissonant note, but the way that he plays it, creating that kind of expectation and tension, and all of those things just become part of of what's what's going on. If you're improvising at a at a at a professional level, one mm-hmm. would hope that you're not consciously doing anything. Yeah, it's just kind of your fingers are moving how they're moving. You're, you're, you're listening. Yeah. So all of your practicing, all of your listening to records and then learning stuff and practicing and learning how to play them on your instrument and coming up with little exercises and, and all of that is left in the practice room. And then what it is, is it's a conversation Mm -hmm. because obviously it's a big drag to have a conversation with another person that's already decided what they're going to say to you. Right terrible, terrible feeling. And that can happen in music in the same way when people play licks on you and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like, man, there's nothing, you know, in, in a certain way, it's saying nothing that you're doing right now is moving the needle because I have this agenda and I'm going to get this off. That's my opinion about improvised music. Now, that's totally different. I love it when Eddie Van Halen does that because it's all, that's the way that the music is structured to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, I guess a little bit different solo crafting of something like that versus jamming, improvising in a, in a more jam sense, a jazz sense where the music is a conversation. Yeah. Got it. Very cool. Um, one more on stage with snarky puppy question. Um, I know sometimes on the violin you're playing what the horns are playing and sometimes you're playing what the guitar is playing. Does that change on a show-to-show basis, like depending on how many of the horns players are on tour, um, how many guitars there are? How Do you just kind of, you know, oh, I'm feeling the guitar melody today, so I'm going to play guitar. Like, how, what, what goes into that decision process? And is it something that you discuss with um, the other band members before the show or it just kind of happens as it happens? Great question. Uh, then the answer is for that stuff, for the, for the actual melodic written parts of the song before the improvisation. Yes, we do Mm -hmm. talk about that. And yes, if they're down to only two horns instead of having three and they need, they really need this harmony part on this song. And we know that we're going to probably play it. Then I'll get with the horn players backstage. And if I don't already know that harmony part, they show it to me or I remember it. And yeah, if there's a song that has a, there's a there's a couple of songs that have double lines with the guitars and when I'm not playing with them a lot of times one of the keyboards is doubling with the guitar but then when I come on tour <clears throat> the keyboard player gets a different part then they have to figure out what they're doing are they laying out or are they playing something else and then yeah. me and the guitar player work out which one of those parts am I playing the melody or am I playing the harmony um and so we're always shifting we're always shifting. We're always practicing 
Always. Yeah. Uh, thank God we have early, our, our sound checks last about five minutes. It, it takes hours and hours and hours and hours for the band to, to be set up all the, yeah. all the technical stuff, especially all the drums and percussion. Um, but the actual playing that's funny is super. Mike league is the shortest sound checking person of all time. And sound checks are never used for rehearsing. Uh, if they're, if they're, it's to just check levels of things. It's to, it's to, it's to check everybody's on stage mix and the outside house mix at the same time. So yeah. first thing that we, uh, first thing that we check is what about me mm-hmm. from the very, very start into the melodies always. And then we cut it always. And then the second thing we do is, uh, five, four section and kite. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe the whole thing's in, I don't know. There's like a certain chorus part. We do that. We don't even play the whole thing. Probably play it for 15, 20 seconds max each. And then everybody goes down the line. I think Mike learned this because there's so many people on stage. Mm -hmm. If you play a whole bunch and then you've got to ask somebody, you've got to ask everybody, okay, what do you need more of? What do you need less of? Uh, It takes too much time. So the time is devoted to everybody getting their sound right. And then we go backstage and then we're like, oh shit, man. Oh God. Okay. We're playing that song. I haven't played that since last year. Okay. So who's playing that part? And then, you know, and then we have a few hours to get it together and, you know, then we're off to the, into the hallways with the earphones shedding and figuring right. it out. And, you know, so is there ever a time where there's full band rehearsal or is it just, you show up and you, you, you have, like, are you practicing material right now to be ready for the upcoming tour? Because you show up on the first date and it's just like, all right, you're on stage and going. That's it. That's it. You got to show up. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really the only band I've ever, well, it's the only band I've ever played in that has no charts. Mm-hmm. It's the only band I've ever played in that has this much repertoire and no right. charts. Right. And uh, I think that's a repertoire this complex with no charts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but it's it's great because the onus is on all the musicians and it, there's no way that any any of us would ever show up. Uh, I mean, first of all, nobody ever feels 100% prepared when they show up. Right. <laughs> That's something that we all have a, you know, a, a bit of a support group type thing going on this the first few shows <laughs> and, until we start to kind of settle into you know, okay, we're kind of concentrating on these 15 songs right now. And right. maybe we'll add one in. Michael, Mike will let us know. Um, he'll, he'll update us. He, he sent an email the other day, just kind of getting us all ready to think about this that said, these are the songs that I want to do for uh, these upcoming tours. Right. So like, you know, these are the songs that we maybe haven't played in a few years that we're going to bring back a little bit. Got it. Exactly. Yeah. So it's the whole, the new record, so that's kind of intense because there's a sixteen of, songs, yeah, a lot of songs on that, yeah, and then the record before it, yeah, so all the other records. So and then as we get into it, we'll start to whittle it down, and there'll be a, a smaller pool that'll be in circulation. But yeah, I mean, everybody's always shedding a little bit, you know, and mm-hmm. and if you're not shedding the stuff that you're trying to remember more clearly, you're shedding the stuff that you wish you'd played a little bit better in the last show, or kind of doing doing that doing that thing but it's great it's it's intense mm-hmm. really intense but it's a, it's a it's a joy it's a pleasure i've tried to recreate it 
sometimes with other projects of my own. And I found out just how difficult it is to do that and how special it is to have that many people agreeing to do that. Yeah. Because that's not what usually jazz musicians, improvising musicians, they want, they want the book, they want the set list, they want to know what songs they're soloing on. Right. Um, so you can prepare. In so, yeah. yeah, so that, so that you can prepare and, and stuff like that. So, yeah. That's yeah. really cool. Um, then before we wrap up, I do want to ask about uh, the new album, Empire Central, uh, that's coming out just uh, next week. When this is coming out, it'll be this week, which is very exciting. I can't wait to hear it. Uh, the first three singles have been amazing. Um, I, you know, I want to highlight your solo on Belmont, which is really cool uh, to hear because a lot of time, you know, as we've, we've talked about, you use effects a lot. And that one, at least to my ears, it only sounded like you had some delay and maybe reverb on it, but it was just really like a beautiful, beautiful violin solo and no problem. Uh, this is, this is your first time doing a, a live, you know, with an audience record with snarky puppy no. in a long time. No, I was gonna say in a long time, uh, you know, the band hasn't done one since we like it here. Um, but you were on hiatus from them then. I right. Think, right. But, uh, let's see the ones that, so, Tell your friends. That yeah. was that was the first live one. Yeah, and then also ground up. That one that one was live. So actually, I was used to recording live in that way. Yeah, until we did Culture Vulture. Yeah, that was actually the first time. Because then the studio stuff early, early on, right when I first got into the band, that was on Bring Us the Bright, and that was something where the record was. They were mostly recording it down in. Texas at, at one place, but then I came in to lead a string quartet and some string parts in that, Ooh. and then overdubbed solos and things like that. Right. Um, but anyway, yes. Uh, the so what did we do for for Empire Central? Uh, we have never we have never worked this hard on on a record. It was so intense. Mm-hmm. We 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 rehearsed slash learned the songs for a week straight of rehearsals that started in the morning and went until we were done. There was not really any even sort of a cutoff time. Mm-hmm. It was so intense. And I mean, people were still finishing songs at that point. Yeah. Um, or we were still pulling things apart and putting them back together and, and, and everything like that. And, uh, and then the cool, the really cool thing was we had never done this many shows, all of the live well, I mean, when I just when I'm thinking about tell your tell your friends and uh, ground up, I was like two sets of this. Yeah, and then you had to hope that those were album worthy sets. Yeah, yeah that was it. Mm-hmm. With this, they actually sold tickets. Of course, it was this whole thing of not playing during the pandemic, and right, it was supposed to be. Yeah, I remember it was supposed to be like last fall, but then it was postponed, and then oh yeah, yeah, yeah man. I mean, and you know, people were getting COVID in the middle of the recording. And I mean, we, we were all testing every day mm-hmm. and it was just that whole thing that everybody that was, everybody that's dealt with professional life during the pandemic. I think everybody sort of just went through the whole, the same thing. Yeah. Um, except that working a job, kind of an office job and one person in your office gets sick, the whole thing doesn't fall apart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas with the performing arts, you know, the, the bass player gets sick and they can't be there. You're just, 
you know, you're, you're in bad shape. Yeah. So, you know, we were on high alert. Um, yeah. Like one, one of the interns got COVID and this, this poor kid had come all the way from Spain uh. and basically spent a week and a half in a hotel room in Dallas, not being able to see anyone and then just had to fly home. Really, uh. really shitty. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but you guys made it through. We made it through miraculously, and um, then they did all of these. Con- I mean, I don't even remember how many concerts we did, but we played a lot. Um, we now where so many songs, we couldn't play all the songs every night. So right. that so that was needed um, because we 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 would usually move through a few days of getting all the different versions of a particular tune, and then you know create more shows but it was also tricky because there were tickets sold for the shows Mm -hmm. so mike had to program it so that it was still a good show right like craft it like a like a concert set list so it flows well yeah yeah so you can't have all the sleepy songs just in one three nights in a row yeah exactly in one set so um it must have been cool for you guys too though you know you're not playing the same set 10 times looking for the you know the right songs for the album you're playing the songs in different orders you're not doing the same song every time yeah Yeah, very true um we didn't know what was ultimately going to even end up on the record right whether all 16 were going to yeah exactly so there was that there was that element that was just really special the folks at deep ellum art company are unbelievable i love those people um the whole thing, the way that it came together, the way that ground up put this together, it was, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, the ante was upped so much from this, for this record. And to be quite honest, um, so I have the record sitting on my computer. I've got the, the masters. Um, I haven't listened to it yet. (laughs) I, you know, I, I, I listened to what I had to listen to for, the tour in, in the spring and summer. Yeah. Um, but I haven't, you know, I don't know. I, I don't, some musicians love to listen to their stuff all the time. They put on their music when their friends come over. I'm one of the opposite. I, I don't <laughs> even, if I hear something that I'm even on at all, I just immediately go in the other room or I turn it off if I can. But um, we're about to on Monday. Uh, th- here's another super amazing thing. So the whole thing is, is shot and directed by this incredible uh, filmmaker in Spain, Jeb Jorba, mm-hmm. and um, uh, just this like giant crew. Plus, Andy LaViolette was well. Andy Le- Andy LaViolette was there, but he just came to hang out because he's got another gig. He was the guy that used to do all of our video stuff. So, got it. Um, there, there were some people from past productions, but in a way, this was kind of a new group of people. There's a big Spanish contingent going on now because Mike lives in Spain and um, you know, all the interns were from Spain and uh, the, the film director and all of that. Um, so we had Nick Hard of doing the, uh, the engineering um, and then also Fab DuPont was involved as well. And I didn't exactly, I don't think not any of us really knew what was going on, but we found out after the fact that, oh, not only is this coming out as the record and as the the full film of of everything but also it's being there's going to be a version of it that's mixed in the new dolby atmos whatever whatever new, yeah like really the, insane quality sound the beyond thing of full 360 immersive oh, man. sound and so this 
Monday, they're already they're doing one in LA. It might have already even happened, or it might be happening tonight. I think it's the end of this. Oh, that's maybe. right. They, yeah, they they did one at Deep Ellum, or they're doing one, and then they're doing one in LA, and then I'll be at the one in New York on Monday, and I get to go with my wife and kids, and Nick is going to be there, and um, I may I think Chris Bullock will be there, and uh, you know wh- whoever is still left in the New York area, right? That has- hasn't moved off and uh, I'm going to finally listen to the whole album, <laughs> listen and see the whole thing in a room full of people and friends. And um, I'm really excited because awesome. I, I, I just know, I know that coming away from that experience, I thought, wow. So it's one thing to come back after come back during the pandemic or as the pandemic is kind of winding down and to, to do this next record, which had, as you said, had been postponed and, you know, all, all of everyone's plans just sort of getting totally screwed up. Mm-hmm. Um, it would just be one thing just to come back and just do another record. But I think that all of us talked a lot about and agreed after the fact that it was sort of like Mike upped the ante at least three times. Everything about it, the, the, the production, the writing, the collaboration, the, the whole recording and the filming thing. I mean, everything was up at least three levels. I mean, I don't even know where we go from here, honestly, at this point. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I don't even know. So I, I, I'm very, I'm excited for people to hear this. It's also always, um, when you start to, well, when you play in a band that has been playing for a while and people start to have really their favorite stuff. And this is something that all fish fans can relate to. Yeah. Um, being in the band, you want to you want to reach people and you want people to connect emotionally and viscerally with the performances and, and to enjoy it. That's you're you're there to share that communication. But you also don't want to just keep doing the same stuff. Yeah, like play lingus. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so you know that there's always gonna be a certain element of every time you do something new, if it really is new you're going to leave some people behind and then some people are going to come along and then you might get some new people. Right. Um, you don't ever want to leave anybody behind, but that, you know, that happens. People just like, you know, fuck it. I don't want to listen to anything after, you know, for snarky puppy. I don't want to listen to anything except for the way that it sounded on, uh, we like it here. Yeah. You know, or I don't want to listen to anything, you know, whatever. Um, it is also interesting how, as you move away from creating the new material and you keep playing it and people hear it, it expands again, in different ways. It expands yeah. in different ways. And also people jump back on. So, you know, that one, that's something that happened with immigrants. Mm-hmm. Oh that's yeah. Fun. Big time listening to shows from the spring versus the fall, the material, you know, changes so much. It changed a lot. And what we also noticed from the stage and as the band and and talking to people in the audience after the shows is that um, a lot of people that really did not want to, to hear any of that new stuff started to it's, it's when people start to really identify and and like your new stuff. That's a, it's a Mm -hmm. good feeling. So it must've been a really good feeling for uh, Trey and and everybody in the band to, to get past Oh, we have to do this all the time, bro. Like, you know, we all, we're going to have to just be playing game hinge for the rest of our lives. Otherwise the hardcore fans aren't going to connect. But then all of a sudden when a new song, but maybe it came out two years ago, but to some people it's still new 
finally starts to be the thing that people want to hear. Right. Is a it's a it's a good feeling. Yeah. That was a really really great way to tie it back to fish. That was that was impressive. I wasn't sure if we were going to land back there. <laughs> um, but Zach, thank you so much, uh, for coming on today. It's been, uh, such an honor and a pleasure, uh, talking to you about improvisation and snarky puppy and fish and everything. Um, so I, I hope this upcoming, uh, Europe tour is amazing. I look forward to hopefully hearing some recordings from it soon. Um, and, uh, if you're listening, uh, don't miss empire central, uh, snarky puppy's new album out September 30th. Zach, do you have anything outside of snarky puppy uh coming out anytime soon i know you have a new album that came out this year yeah yeah if uh, if folks haven't checked it out check out my uh strangely titled album dirty minds just came out uh, in june so uh, to me it's still new mm-hmm. and this is uh definitely the this is the very very electric very eff- effect laden rocked out album that i was never putting out on my own that i finally did and uh it's got a couple of snarky puppy cats in there uh, mark letieri on guitar justin stanton on keys and he plays some trumpet on a tune and also chris bullock jumps in on some uh, flute um and then it also has the legendary drummer eric harland and uh the amazing bass player jonathan Marin from groove collective and various other things um and some other really cool guests so yeah um people want to hear some jazz rock violin check out dirty minds that's out on on ground up and you can you can find it in all those places awesome well thank you very much zach uh hope you have a fantastic day thank you everybody uh for listening to this episode of we move through stormy weather we'll see you again soon thank you thanks ryan We wanted to let you know about Music on the Mountain, a show that will feature Anders Osborne, Dogs in a Pile, and Saints and Liars. This show will be directly after the Divided Sky Foundation's fun run at 2 p.m. on Saturday, May 18th at the base of Akimo Mountain in Ludlow, Vermont. The show is presented by The Phoenix, a national nonprofit organization offering support to those in recovery and anyone impacted by substance use to celebrate recovery. If you're running in the Divided Sky Foundation's fun run, you'll be automatically registered for the show. It's a family-friendly event, and all proceeds from ticket sales and other donations benefit the Divided Sky Foundation. Visit Music on the Mountain, that's musiconthemtn.com for more info and to get tickets. That's musiconthemtn.com. Hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. And for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. 
So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.